0: Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, you can go to the book of Colossians. It's in sort of the back of the Bible if you kind of open it up. It's a little letter in the back half of your Bible. You can grab the Bible in front of you if you brought one. Or on your phone, your phone's got your Bible. If you're a phone kind of person, a screen, a digital person, Book of Colossians, and we're going to look at—we've uh, been looking at a four-week series of this little letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, and it's in the latter half of your Bible. It's very impactful. Don't uh, don't miss the fact that it's short, but it's dense, and I don't want us to miss that. Highly impactful and dense. And, uh, you can read this letter in one sitting as well. And so, uh, if you've got time this week, read this letter all the way through. You can do it and it's dense, but it's heavy and it's good. And I hope part of who, what my role is, is to help you and I communicate the ways in which God is working in and through this letter. It's a big value of mine as I uh, continue to try to uh, hopefully open up the Scriptures and help us learn a little bit more about God's Word. So we saw this, but if you missed last week, but we're calling it The Supremacy of Christ. And we're calling this book, Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, because one of the themes, major themes of this book is that that Christ is above all else. That Christ is all, is all that we need. And the good news and the gospel is above all other things. And this Christ is above all every name. He's the greatest treasure. And when we understand and know the supremacy of Christ and the goodness of Christ and the power of Christ, we can know that God is good and he's the highest authority above every name, highest over of all things and the highest object of our hearts as well. And he might be the highest object in his name would be proclaimed and his heart would be over all things and all people. And we said that like even the major theme of this book is this big idea is that the gospel is the supremacy of Christ and it changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Jesus died and rose and is seated at the right hand of the father. The gospel changes everything and the good news is that good news. The gospel means good news. And so as we take the good news, as we are messengers and carriers of the good news, that the good news is the the greatest gift for all mankind, for all of us, and the greatest gift for every human heart Colossians one eighteen is a signature verse, and it says this and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the what supremacy, and at the beginning sin entered the world, it separated us from God. And God sent Jesus, his son, to mend that so we could have a relationship with God and forever mend that relationship that was lost at the beginning of time. It separated us from darkness and sin and then through death and through Adam and Eve, it separated us from the one true God. And through Jesus, we are made right with God again and right in the relationship because of his sacrifice and the work in the person of Jesus Christ. God, through the person of Jesus, is bringing the supreme object and treasure of what it truly means to follow God, to follow Jesus. And God is getting everything His rightful place as the supreme object of our lives. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that God would have His rightful place in our lives, in our hearts. It changes everything from the inside out. Everything from the inside out in our lives. And it changes us and not from the outside in, but from the inside out in our lives and our hearts. So as a Christian, our greatest object and treasure is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have a joy that the world does not know about because we know Jesus as our Savior. We know because Christ is our greatest treasure. And we are open up our lives and we open up our hearts. We bring forth this idea that Jesus is the supremacy in our own heart and lives, and so He is the name above all other names. He's the head over every power and authority, and that includes our lives, and that includes all the things in which we have placed even above Him. We place Him as the supreme treasure, the person and work of Jesus that changes everything. So, let me tell you a little bit about Colossae. So, the Bible was written in a specific historical context in a period of time. This is a this is a city, the city of Colossae, is right off of the coast. In Turkey. And it was a small town in those days. It wasn't a large city, small town. And it's right off the coast in in those days. And it was kind of not really well known in the shadow of its neighbors in those days. There's some bigger cities, towns uh, nearby in in those days. And so most people believe that this Colossian church, this is written to the church and Christians in Colossae that have been formed. This is a young church at this point in time. Young Christians, young church, and they're still being formed, so to speak, around the idea and the work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this was a younger church in a smaller town. The guy, the writer of this, his name is Paul. And the guy named Paul was a former, he had his life completely changed. He was a former, I mean, executor of Christians and his life changed. And it's amazing that, I mean, his life just completely flipped upside down. And he met the Lord on a dramatic kind of fashion in Damascus Road. And this kind of provides us a good level of backdrop to the look of Colossians. And so, I mean, the most important thing about Paul was that he completely transformed. He was a former, uh, he, when he met the Lord before that, he was of, of Jewish faith. And so he followed the Lord, he met the Lord on Damascus Road and things dramatically Changed for him in his life, and he's writing this, and he believes so powerfully in the work and the supremacy of Jesus that he writes this letter to the book of Colossians. It's so impactful for us today. And so as he's writing this down, he's writing this letter to to this church, and Paul, over the course of his life, went through beatings and sleepless nights, and he was filled with hunger. He had long journeys filled with danger, shivering cold, without enough clothes to keep him warm. He would travel thousands of miles in obedience to his voice, to the voice of God. His life changed in every way. And he wrote much of your New Testament to these letters, to these churches that he had helped plant and helped partner with to help bring forth the good news of Jesus. And he writes this to the letter in Colossians. So 833 is the page number in front of you if you want to follow along. And uh, if you if you want to open up the Bible in front of you, we uh, Washington Union Alliance Church, we value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. It's my prayer that you would find a church that does the same thing, preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. So Colossians two, we're just going to start in verse one and then we'll kind of continue on from there. We're in chapter two. We'll kind of walk through this. We'll read the verse and then we'll kind of continue and walk through this together. It says this in verse one, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Isn't it just out of thought when I read verse one this week? I just I just want to stop there just for a moment to say that Paul. If the backdrop of this is that Paul has not met these people, he uh, he's away from them. He has not personally met the people of Colossians, and yet, isn't it motivating to know how tirelessly Paul, this apostle Paul, this great man, fights for these people? He says, "I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, even though I've not met met you in person." It's astounding. I find it amazing and astounding that Paul is the leader of this of this. And he has not been there personally, but he is contending for them personally. His heart is there. You can hear that and see that you can hear that in his voice. You can sense that in verse one. I'm telling you, he's a good leader. A good leader is somebody who is with you and is contending for you and praying for you. Good leaders are going to pray and contend for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. And Paul's a good leader here. And, and mentioning this struggle, I'm contending for you. This is a, in the original language. It's the word agnon. It's the word that we get in the English language called we get agony. That original word in the original language of the Bible was derived from the place where the Greeks assembled for their Olympic Games, a place where they agonized in wrestling and foot races and where they fought to win. Paul had been agonizing, fighting for the Colossians for everything that he had. And what makes this truly remarkable is that he had not met them personally. He had not met them personally. And aside from Epaphras and Philemon and perhaps a few others that he had met in Ephesus, he had never seen the Colossians at this point. He had no idea what they looked like, know nothing of their personalities, yet he agonized for them, contended for that. Why the strain? Why? why? I mean, what, what would make somebody like contend for people that would that he's never even met before? Because he was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and we find that in Acts nine fifteen. You see, Paul had a burning desire, a calling upon his life, for people to come to know Jesus and he had this burning desire that he wanted people to come to know Jesus Christ. He had a completely transplanted heart, a heart that was completely made new because of Jesus. And he completely had this heart and mind completely turned upside down because of the work that had happened because he met Jesus on that road. He was a transformed person because of that encounter. He had on Jesus on an, on on Damascus road, but it didn't come without its conflict and it didn't come without its hardship. Wherever Paul went, Church, wherever Paul went, there were riots in Ephesus, there were beatings in Philippi, there was stoning in Lystra, there were shipwrecks at sea, there was dangers everywhere. And Paul bared his heart in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And the words he used here describe a beast of burden that had fallen and he could not get up because that load was so heavy for him. This is how Paul felt when he was in Asia. He thought that he was going to die. And there was this agnon, there was this contending of labor for these people. He was a good leader that was contending for these people and praying for them. And these verses, it says this, that it was a struggle to even work at day and night, so as not to be a burden to anybody just to present the gospel. And that. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. there was this agnon from caring so much of how his converts were doing. He says, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and am I not indignant? And it hurts to care. And there were nights when Paul tossed and turned and he thought about his prayer. And all the people, the converts that, that had come to know Jesus and empathized with their ups and downs as well. But most of all, Paul wrestled in prayer for them. And that's church where the fight is, is in prayer. That's where the fight is. In Colossians 4.12, he told how faithful Epaphras was, was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. It's good to have prayer partners. It's good to have people who are contending for you in prayer, for contending for the church. And prayer as well. In Ephesians 6, where he described how to put on the full armor of God so as to do battle, he concluded by telling the fully armed warrior to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, and to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And this is where the greatness of his struggle for the Colossian believers lay. Paul agonized with people he had never even. Met, Lord, and this is the prayer for the, even the church. And as we look at this and we say, what does this mean? What does this look like? What does this look like on the ground for my life? God, I just, we've, I've said this before, but it's my prayer collectively as a church. God, that we would get the prayer life of, of even what God might have for us as a church. But we're asking God, we're saying, Lord, we pray as a church that our hearts burn for what breaks your heart, for what breaks the heart of God. Lord, may that be the heartbeat of our church that whatever breaks God's heart would break our hearts as a church. What a heart that Paul had. Enlarged hearts always know this struggle, the agnon, so to speak. They have sleepless nights. They empathize. They struggle in prayer. But those big hearts, they know the most joy. They know the most joy. It's this kind of heart that all of us are called to, whether we are missionaries or merchants. Heart that is willing to agonize, not only of our even our own little circle, maybe in our own families. We agonize and pray for our own families, but also for the church universal, for the church at large, capital C Church. There's a pastor in Chicago who likes to say, when the tide is in, all the ships are riding high. When the Holy Spirit is working, then we'll all be riding high and none of us will be scraping bottom. His concern is not just for his church, but for the greater church. And if we have a heart like Paul's, We won't just pray simply just for our own little fellowship, but also for the greater church and the capital C church. We'll pray for our church. We'll pray for our local church here. We'll also pray for all of the capital C church, and we'll pray for the world and the city around us as well. Verse two, picking up in verse two, we're going to read through verse five. It says this, my goal is that they may be encouraged in what? Heart and united in what? It was A.W. Tozer that said this quote, and I've shared this before, but A.W. Tozer said this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the prayer for Paul here is that they understand, did you notice? I understand that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, and that an increased spiritual well-being is focused on an increasing knowledge upon who Jesus is in the work and the person of Christ alone. Less than a month, C.S. Lewis is an author. I don't know if you've uh, raised your hand if you've heard of C.S. Lewis. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Many, many, many things. Mere Christianity. The list goes on and on. Anyway, less than a month before C.S. Lewis died, he wrote this letter to a little girl and he said, Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter. It was good of you to write and tell me that you like my books. And what a very good letter you write for your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing can ever go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. I, our conception of Him is everything. And I pray that each of us, even if you are here today and struggling through life, wondering my, what, what, what might happen next, wondering about the next doctor's appointment, physical ailment, unsure of the future, struggling to find contentment, struggling with raising kids or even the most personal things that seem lost and in despair. It's my prayer that every speck across the light years that make up our galaxy, there is a creator who created the textures and shapes and colors that daily dazzle our eyes, and a creator who forms you with intent from every single atom of your body, and there's a creator who loves you beyond belief, and you're created in his image. And it's my prayer, including Paul's, that we be encouraged and love. In the church in verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And I just talked about this on Wednesday to our midweek group on Wednesday. But I pray, I pray that the church and we, but the church be an extension of love to the community, that when people walk also through our doors, that they would echo exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 2. That people might experience the love of God when they walk through the door of this church. That people would experience the love of God and know how much God truly loves them. And Jesus says that to his disciples as a command. He says this and as a command to his disciples. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And out of a deep and overflowing heart that's committed to Jesus and following Jesus and connected to Jesus is a heart that seeks the face of God through love to our neighbor and to those around us. In John 13, he says this command, and then he, uh, it's simply that Jesus seeks the washing of feet as well. And he puts that out there to them, to his disciples, to say, you have this love, now go show it to others. By this, everyone's going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, we fully experience the love of God in Christian community. We experience this together. When we are loved by fellow believers, we experience Christ through them, and the knowledge of Christ for our is enhanced. And when we don't make community a priority, it cheapens it. It fades it out and it fades our understanding of who Christ Jesus truly is, of who Jesus truly is for our lives. When we cheapen that, when we drift off, when we fade away from community and from drifting from that, we drift from who the person of Jesus is. We are meant to be together. And it's by doing the word. It's by also doing it and committing ourselves to the Christian community. And it's not to say that we earn our salvation by good works, by doing things. But we grow in our depth of understanding when we are in community together. And when we love one another really, really well. Uh, it's also doing. We also grow in our love, not simply by, by we know, we acknowledge who Jesus is. We rest in the love of the Father and who we are and Jesus and the identity that we have. But we also grow in our doing and our love. For God, as we work our salvation out with fear and trembling and love our neighbor, verse six, let's go to verse six through eight. It says this. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Church, let's just have a moment here. This young Christian church in Colossae is going through a crisis of this, a very young church, and probably maybe a crisis of faith in which you're going through right now. A temptation to believe that there are greater philosophies and other ways of thinking that are quite superior to the ways of Jesus. We get a heart from this Apostle Paul to this young church in Colossae who evidently needed strength and encouragement the faith in a very polarizing world, even in Colossae, even in those days. Written some 2,000 years ago, we find that this church was putting together their own faith in a world that was vying for their attention. They're facing into the wind every day. Facing into the wind of all the dominant philosophies of the day. And they fill the marketplaces and avenues. And neighbors who might believe in these new philosophies in those days. And for those new Christians, and for a young church, this was a very real thing. This was a very real temptation and very real thing. Winds and views today opposed to the risen Jesus are everywhere. Views and opposing things to the risen Jesus and the faith at which that young church had clung to, and every view of who they are and in those days. They didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have social media, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have threads, they didn't have all the social media, they didn't have all those things, you name it. But don't think for a moment this young church was just a little bit overwhelmed about the tide of anti-Christian sentiment in those days. And mind you, this church started right after Jesus had died and rose. This is a very young church. Lauren Mead says in this book, The Once and Future Church, that for the people in Colossae to step outside your door as a Christian was to face antagonism. The mission field began right on your front steps. You would, you would be considered in those days backwards and simplistic if you believed in this risen Jesus, out of touch with society. Every way of thinking and reasoning was against these new Christians. So... The way out, stand firm. Stand firm. Just as you received Christ, continue to root your lives in Him, strengthen in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And it doesn't take a pastor to stand up in front of the church today and acknowledge the reality of a godless world in which we live. We live in times of hostility toward believers in Jesus, not necessarily persecution like the rest of the world may have against Christianity, which happens much more prevalent around the world. But there's some great hostility toward the faith, toward Christianity and believers in Jesus. The more and more our friends and family fall away from the faith, then we'd like to admit. Great zeal is seen in the beginning stages of faith. We've got great zeal. We accept Jesus. We've got great fervor and zeal for the faith. And then over time, it tends to erode and fade away. Leaving us wondering what happened to the faith that we once professed. And the idea echoes from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the who? Lord, and who meditates on His law day and night. That person is like a what? Tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. You see, Paul uses an agricultural word rooted and then an architectural word built up in Colossians 2 to describe the necessary spiritual progress for our lives. We grow into spiritual maturity because of what Christ does in and through us. The Holy Spirit grows us into maturity as well. Have you ever seen a tree firmly and deeply rooted into the ground. You ever seen that, a tree? I mean, you can't really see it because it's above the the, the ground. But have you ever noticed this? Well, I have very, very recently, about 30 feet behind me, behind this brick wall, there was two massive bushes that uh, that were bushes that they turned into tree trunks. If you were there that day, you understand that it takes two or three pickup trucks to chain those things and to rip those things out. Have you ever seen a tree like that has been impossible to take out before? Raise your hand if you've ever seen a tree. Okay, so we've got some people. You understand the ginormous impact of this tree, right? Um, firmly rooted in the ground. Um, firmly, like they ain't coming out unless there's something like heavy duty that's got to pry these things out with them. So it took about 15 tries with a pickup truck, chaining these things as fast as it could to get these things out of the ground behind me. Um, our lives become deeply rooted as we continue to live our lives in Him, rooted and build up in Him, strengthened in the faith as we abide in Him, grow in Him, and submit to Him as well. And in a similar fashion, our culture attempts to entice us with per- persuasive philosophies and worldly values that denigrate the person of Jesus, our Savior. And subtly, over time, seek to render our faith as futile and ineffective. In order to combat these influences, we have to denounce any teaching to the contrary. Our world attempts to try and bend and bow our trees back and forth. It's got to be firmly established and rooted in the person of Jesus for everything. And in Psalm 1, we find that this tree is planted. You're planted. This is a planted tree. God chooses where to place us for our good to bring order and beauty into the world and your world and the world that you are in right now for a reason. Several commentators noted the strong use of the word. Uh, they said that the word planted in this psalm, this is not a random tree that grows in a forest. There's a purpose to this tree and they receive and this tree receives a nourishment that it needs to flourish. There's a purpose to this tree. It's been planted by the master gardener. And it's able to grow because it's planted to receive the nourishment it needs to flourish. And as we continue, we continue to remain consistently. And as it abides in that, we continue to remain consistently fruitful. In verse 4, we find the psalmist again giving us warning toward the wicked. He says this, Not so the wicked, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. And the picture here is a during a th- uh, the, the threshing floor during harvest time. Those heads of wheat are cr- crushed to create, the, separate the kernels from the husk, and it was tossed in the air so that the wind would carry away the lighter husks, like the chaff, while the heavy kernels fell back down on the ground. If you think of a combine harvesting wheat in like a Kansas wheat field, so to speak, um, dust and bits of straw in a cloud cr- across the prairie behind it. And the contrast here is nothing short of an opposite contradiction. Instead of a solid tree, the wicked are a hollow shell. He or she does not produce fruit. His or her life is a husk. No roots to hold him steady and reach the water. He or she is blown by the wind. Rootless, weightless. It's a danger for us, church, to heed this. Blown by the wind. It's a stern warning that the hollow philosophies of the world and fine sounding arguments as they increase, as our culture begins to increase those arguments and it becomes more prevalent in our world, the winnowing winds of the culture will reveal the truth about who we are. When the winds blow and the culture begins to kind of give way, what will it reveal about us? And the danger of that many of the chaff mask it really, really well. And some of us do the right things see the right people we hang out at the right places and even go and kind of go through the motions talk the talk but don't live it out and walk it out and eventually eventually sadly the winnowing and the winds will reveal the truth that spiritual life is often hollow it's a danger verses 5 and 6 i just want to read verses 5 and 6 here of psalm 1 so I turn there. It says this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So even as we look at this, the wicked will stand in the judgment. We're not standing the judgment, we sinners in the assembly of the mockers. So the question we've got today standing before us is, who are we becoming? And which life do you want to be yours? For those young Christians in Colossians, the world's fallenness and lostness was caving in. Does it mask your life? Does that identify your life? Maybe you're here today, you've kind of wrestled through some of that, you're currently wrestling through it, and you're hanging on maybe by a thread on simple faith and wondering... You know, maybe you're like, man, that person that I've read or a person I'm in school with, you know, the person I've read in a textbook or I'm being taught. Man, that person's a brilliant physicist or that person's a brilliant scientist or a brilliant philosopher. And you feel like you are no match for that person or for the world. And you're wondering, you know, that's the only voice. But it's not the only voice. There's the voices of education, cultural movements, social scientists that consider your faith and mine to simply be a relic of the past. Jesus is just a relic that we just observe of the past, having no value on everyday living. Simplistic in our reasoning, so to speak. In short, don't be intimidated. Don't be alarmed. Because science and philosophy have been trying to drown out and bury God for years You see, let it be known, church, that the tomb is still empty, that the cross is still final and death has been defeated. Let it be known that its tomb is still empty, the cross is final and death has been defeated. Verses 9 to 15 go like this in the book of Colossians. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us and he has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them trying triumphing over them by the cross you see church the power of the cross changes everything everything that which everything that changes by which everything that everything that the condemned heart would would condemn us by everything by which a guilty conscience condemns us everything is forgiven when we trust that what He's done for us on Calvary is done for us, we're passed by that condemnation and fully made alive in Him. We are not simply robots who are in Christ. We are dead people made alive in Him. Paul's challenge for the Colossians was to continue to walk in Christ. is that same call in Ephesians one. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Daniel Aiken's a writer. He writes this excerpt, church. I think this is great. I just want to read this to you. It says this. And he would say this, he's much smarter than I am. So they just think this is a great excerpt. He says it like this. But as in the case of those original recipients of this letter, this requires us to pursue intimacy with Jesus, to find fulfillment in the sufficiency of Jesus, and to claim our victorious identity in Jesus. Each of these steps in our, in our walk faces specific challenges that attempt to trip us up and detour us in our journey. For instance, as believers, we will face the temptation to drift away from the foundational truth of the gospel and personal intimacy with Christ as we grow comfortable and complacent in our salvation. We can become distracted by the busyness of our lives and ministries or even begin to explore other sources of spiritual nourishment and fulfillment. Instead, we must deepen our intimacy with Christ through the renewing grace and mercy of the gospel so that we can continually be grounded, growing and be grateful. Likewise, our world would continue to entice us with its indulgent values, its empty promises and even its spiritual counterfeits in an effort to convince us that they can satisfy and stabilize our lives. Rather than abandoning Jesus entirely, we may be persuaded to compromise our faith by attempting to synthesize worldly beliefs and behaviors with our commitment to Jesus Christ. But the sufficiency of Christ requires us to denounce any competing means of fulfillment, that by which is ultimately empty and can never truly satisfy you see, his fullness is the only source of true satisfaction that can ever be diluted or depleted. Ultimately, our walk with Christ must also overcome the temptations to find our identity and what we know, what we can do or what we have done. Our identity as believers is determined by who we know, what he has done and all that he offers. And through his burial and death and resurrection, Christ has adopted us into his family. He has purchased our salvation and He has given us new life with the power to walk in the victory that He has secured on our behalf. So today, church, I just want you to know this. Know this, church, like for those Christians in Colossae, this is what I want us to know. Feeling the weight of the world around them, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Church, we are forgiven. We are freed by the blood of Jesus. The cross is final. The tomb is empty. Be strong and courageous. Amen. Amen. Let nothing move you. We are forgiven. We are freed by the blood of Jesus. The cross is final. The tomb is empty. Be strong and courageous, church. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. That the goal is that we would be encouraged in heart and united in love so that we may know the full riches of complete understanding in order that this church and we all may know the mystery of God, namely Jesus Christ. Amen.